I created my own closure and my own story of why and how and what. And with a suicide, it's so different from any other death because part of the hardest part is just not knowing or not understanding. And I almost, a couple of times I said to people early on, it almost would have been easier if it was a car accident because you can't explain that. Like you right. can't, it's just random. You just have to accept it and move on. And with a suicide, I just felt like that wasn't good enough. Like I needed to know more. Hello, and thank you for joining our podcast, Hope to Recharge, a show that is designed to bring hope, inspiration, motivation, and some practical tips to those that are battling depression and anxiety, and to those that are supporting loved ones that are going through the journey in this difficult time of depression and anxiety. I'm here to tell you, you are not alone, and we will live beyond depression and anxiety. We will share our stories one story at a time in a world of mental health together is better. I'm your host, Matana. Thank you for tuning in. Hello, everyone. It is the month of September. How could that be that the summer is over? How did that happen so fast? I feel like this whole year is one big Play-Doh that just different shapes, different forms, flexible, that we don't know, we don't know what it's going to feel like, literally like Play-Doh. So it's the month of September, and I know the last few months were so intense, so, so, so intense. And we're going into another intense month of Suicide Awareness Month. Wow, I really wanted to do something in between. But if you didn't have a chance, before you start this coming month, go to my website. And under our bonus episodes, you're going to have hope to recharge.com forward slash bonus, you'll find our bonus episodes. I highly recommend you listening to our interview with Malky Hirsch on her first milestone after her husband passed away. It's a phenomenal episode. It is not on the regular feed of Hope to Recharge. You can only find it on my website, hopetorecharge.com. Under the tab of bonus, you'll find the link in the show notes. I highly recommend you listen to it because it just ends the whole month of grief, the two months that we discussed grief in a very uplifting, inspiring note. So we're going into Suicide Awareness Month, and I really didn't want to do so many heavy topics one after the other, but I feel like it's so important to speak about suicide awareness. The numbers are just going up, and one of the things that I am so shocked about, and I keep on talking to psychiatrists and therapists and professionals about this, I don't understand why if the awareness of mental illness and mental health awareness and the breaking the stigma is higher than ever, the awareness is more than ever in the history of humankind. The awareness is nonstop. We have everyone talking about it. We have people sharing. We have celebrities, world leaders talking about it. But at the same time, the number of suicide are going up. What is going on? Why? 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 We have to get down to this why and understand why suicide numbers are going up. And it's my mission to help save lives, to help prevent suicide, to talk about suicide awareness, to talk about suicide in general and not be afraid to talk about it with our children, with our loved ones in schools and communities. Let's bring up the conversation about the fact that people struggle with suicide thoughts constantly, and it doesn't mean that they're different than us. It just means that we need to give support. We need to have awareness. We need to know how to support loved ones that are going through it. How do we detect it? What do we do when a loved one tells us that they're thinking about suicide? All this we must, must, must together talk about more and more and more and more and bring more awareness and we're devoting the month of September to Suicide Awareness Month on this episode. If anybody wants to share their story in a form of a blog, please feel free to contact us on the website. You can see contact us, go to hopetorecharge.com, contact us. And if you send us your story, we will publish it under our blog. So that's 
hopetorecharge.com and go to the contact us and you can send your either either an email with your information if you want to be interviewed let us know if you have a moment please 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 do us a big favor if you enjoyed anything and you think that you want to help us a little bit help the community of mental health a little bit by giving back the biggest giving back you could do to us at hope to recharge is going to iTunes and leaving a review on this podcast on Hope to Recharge in general, not specifically on this episode, but Hope to Recharge in general. So please take a moment of your very precious time and tell us what you think. And if you have any insights of how we can improve this podcast, if there's any changes you would like to see, thoughts that you want us to interview on, topics that you want us to interview on, Please communicate with us. We have so many people out there that are helping us develop this show and making it go on to the top 100 on iTunes. We were there in the beginning and we're trying to go higher up. The more help we get from the outside, the higher we go. So thank you for your help. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your input. We are going to interview Marnie an amazing story, an amazing story of courage and Marnie's story and how suicide affected her personal life when she walked into the door one day and found her husband dead by suicide. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Hello, and thank you for joining me here today on another episode that we are going to discuss suicide awareness, breaking the stigma on hiding suicide, how to prevent suicide, how to not be afraid to talk about suicide. I'm actually speaking today to some uh, a new friend of mine that I've met online. And the funny thing is that her name is Marnie Ratner. And Marnie lives in Atlanta. She listened to one of my episodes with Dr. Fier. And she reached out to me to say that she knows Dr. Fier from Atlanta. And then we got to speak and she was so gracious to share with me that she has a story that she would love to share on Hope to Recharge. We did a recording. It didn't publish yet. But then I asked her if she's willing to come to speak about suicide awareness because she has a story that is a very powerful story. For me, it was very powerful. And I was in awe of her openness and lack of shame that people usually have around suicide. Marnie lost her husband exactly 11 years ago this week. It's going to be this week when this episode is published on September 2009, September 24th, 2009. Right, Marnie? Yes. She's so lovely, so lovely and so giving <laughs> and so kind. And it's a very hard topic to talk about. As much as I think, as much as we're used to, like one may think is okay to speak about it, but sometimes the trauma comes back again and again and again when you get into the conversation and relive the experience again. And I'm so grateful that Marnie is willing to talk to me here now and share and hopefully give some insight to others and give the permission to open the conversation and not be afraid of it, not have it as taboo. There's a lot of conversations about breaking the stigma, but when it comes down to it, I find that when I speak to a lot of people, they'll say to me, but don't tell them X, Y, Z. So it's, there's a conversation, but with very little specific topics because there's still a lot of shame. Do you find that, Marnie? Yes, like you're saying, everything's off limits. <laughs> Yeah. Lots of things are off limits. And I have found that part of the difficulty talking about it with people at certain points is less me having difficulty with it and more their difficulty hearing it or someone innocently asking me, well, how did he die? Or, and I automatically cringe and want to be like, are you sure you want to ask me that? Or are you sure you want to know? <laughs> It's so true. There's a saying that Brene Brown once quoted, and I don't want to say it wrong, but it was something about 
real compassion is the ability to hold your own darkness in order to sit with someone else's darkness, mm. something like that. Mm-hmm. And when we're uncomfortable with our own darkness and our own struggles and pain, it's we have a hard time showing compassion to somebody else's darkness. Right. So we avoid it. I was just talking to a friend of mine and she was saying that she doesn't want people to pity her for what, for her life. And people are uncomfortable with that. So she has to make up stories because of the other person's right uh, to make the other person feel comfortable, which is tricky because we have, everybody reacts differently to, to different situations in life. But when we are uncomfortable, when we can be uncomfortable and being uncomfortable, when we can be okay of being uncomfortable mm-hmm. in a certain situation, things flow a little bit better, I think. And that's what you're saying. Right. And back to your friend early on when I was still surely in shock the first couple of years and people would say, how did he die? He was so young. What happened? And I literally wanted to protect them and I didn't want them to have to go through this reaction of being mortified that they had asked me when they heard the answer. And so I was trying to come up with all these crazy other ways to not say suicide and be like, it was self-inflicted or something, or like gloss it over or make it sound more subtle. And years later, I was like, what the heck? I'm like trying to protect these other people. I can't even barely function myself. Right. Right. And this is so important because we have to learn to be okay with uncomfortable conversations. Yes. So Marnie, let's let's walk the listeners down the the story. I remember you telling me that your husband was struggling with a certain kind of depression, but he was a big go-getter. So give us a little bit of a background of what your husband was before suicide. So he was extremely ambitious, driven, successful, the life of the party. We used to joke that really he was a homebody. He loved just, he was happy being at home. And I was the one that would force him to go to the party or whatever. And then we would come home and he, it it would be like, I told you so every time, like, and I told you so moment, like he would have had the best time at the party and everywhere we went, he had an unusual look about him. He looked, he could fit into many different nationalities just by on the surface. Mm-hmm. So people always thought he was from all these exotic places and he really was American. Mm-hmm. But because of that look, like real deep olive skin and dark hair, people remembered him wherever he went. And so, I mean, I would be with him and we would go to the neighborhood coffee shop and he went a lot more often, but I'd be with him a lot. And then one day I go without him and they wouldn't even know who I was. <gasps> and I'm like, oh my gosh. It was always unfair. Like, I'm just like looking like the everyday American girl. And he looks like some, you know, Greek Adonis or something or some Persian person or, I don't know. It was just really funny. So he was definitely memorable because he looked unusual, not like everybody else, but he also was memorable because he was so outspoken and not afraid to say what he really thought, like a true Jersey boy, not say what charisma. A lot of charisma. Yes. Wow. Like, I feel like he made an impact. He, he made up for what he didn't have in stature. He made up for in personality to the point that when I first met him, I felt like he was a tad short for my ideal person. And I very quickly almost like forgot that he was not that tall because he had such a big personality. Wow. So was he covering up something? Was his big personality covering up a lot of pain that was going inside? I think partly, yes. I think I think a lot of things were covering up what was going on inside. I, I don't think he was covering it up in an inauthentic way. I mean, I, I think he... It could be he didn't even know himself that he was covering up, but he was acting in a way that felt good to him. Right. But he was covering it up in the sense that no one outside of the immediate family knew about it about his struggles on the inside. Right. And I remember you telling me that you were shocked when he told you that he had struggles. Yes, I was. And then within, like you were saying that he, in the last few years, it wasn't even the last few years, like 10 years, the last 10 years, he was going to therapy, right? He went before I met him for many years, like around late college into early 
you know, adulthood. And then um, right around when we got married, his person stopped practicing, his psychiatrist stopped practicing or seeing patients. Mm -hmm. And then he stopped going for about almost 10 years. And then his mom passed away a year and a half before he did. And he went back for what he thought. was. Oh, okay. So it was very recent to the, to to the suicide that he started going back to therapy. And I remember you were saying that you think that the passing of his mom was a trigger of, of his trauma growing up. Definitely. Yeah. And you were super supportive. You, you were really encouraging, supportive wife. Yes. And, and you, you, all you wanted was for him to be happy Mm -hmm. and well, and figure it out and figure it out. And, and you were there for him and he felt like you were there for him. Yeah. And I was convinced that he would figure it out because the timing was, you know, 2009 when everybody was freaking out and a lot of people's businesses were having trouble. And so I just kept thinking if he just got his business part back on track, then everything would have been fine. But it ran so much deeper than that. That was just kind of the icing on the cake, I think. Yeah. Sometimes people can go through traumas and be okay with it. The other day I took a picture. You remember there was a storm in New York, probably, I don't know if you had it in Atlanta. It came from Florida and it was a big storm for one day and mm-hmm. tons of trees fell here. And even there were people without electricity for a few days. And I walked my kids to camp a few days later. And I saw this huge tree that just came out of the roots, fell mm-hmm. down. And the immediate thing that I thought about was, this is what trauma is. If we mm-hmm. don't take care of it, things can trigger us and we can fall. So some trees continued staying and they, oh, they, le- they were leaning a little bit or they got broken a little bit. But some of them, they were huge and they fell. They literally came mm-hmm. out of the ground with all the roots and there was no way to put it back. No way. Wow. The tree truck had to come, chop it up, and that's it. And my immediate reaction was, this is what mental illness trauma can look like. Mm -hmm. If we don't take care of it, a trigger can come, a wind, and our life is full of stuff that happens that that can knock us down. The question is, can we get up or are we knocked out of our roots that we can't recover? Right. And as you mentioned, there was, it was just the icing on the cake. The finances were, and his business that fell apart was the icing on the cake. But what was underneath it? What was underneath it was kind of the lifelong struggle that he used to describe to me that was the more emotional, mental component that he lived with every day, like a touch of OCD and a touch of anxiety and a touch of depression and just all of that rolled into one. And he felt like he had created this coping mechanism since a young age. And that was able to help him function day in and day out. And then when the current day hardships started happening with the business going under and finances and with his mom dying, it was just the combination of all of it together, I think is what ultimately allowed it to happen. Yeah. And I'm not going to go into details of the actual suicide because I don't think it's important and relevant for the conversation. Mm -hmm. What I do want to go into is the day of how usual it looked like and how you were completely not aware that this is going to happen. So Mm -hmm. describe to us that day. So every day we used to walk my daughter to school. Um, She was seven at the time. And my son was three. So we would take the stroller and stroll my son to walk to my daughter's school. And then we would circle back and stroll him and walk to uh, the coffee shop. And I think that day we decided to drive her to school because he said he just wasn't really in the mood for coffee. And he was the coffee person, not me. So we drove her to school and then we drove my son to his daycare. And no matter how badly my husband was feeling, he would get out of the car and make a point to walk him into the daycare. Usually both of us would um, every single day. And that day he just said he wasn't up for it and he was going to drop us off at the front. And did I mind just walking him in? So we did that. And then we came home and I was getting ready for work. He worked for himself and it wasn't unusual for him to just get back in bed and take maybe like an hour nap because he just wasn't a morning person. Right. So he got back in bed. I got ready for work. We talked a little bit about his resume and I made a suggestion and I left and um, just went about my day. Um, but a, a 
couple hours later, I wasn't hearing from him and I, I wasn't able to reach him, but I didn't really think anything because I just figured he was still sleeping. And then um, a couple more hours went by. And by then it was like time that he definitely would have been awake and it was going straight to the voicemail. And I didn't realize that that meant the phone was off. So I was trying to text him, but obviously he wasn't seeing those either. And so I finally just started getting this bad feeling. And um, so I drove home and I remember the exact spot I was in when I just got this premonition that was so clear. It's never happened to me since or before that ever that I was going to be planning his funeral. Wow. Like God gave you that thought to prepare yourself for what yes. you're going to see. It was unbelievable. Wow. So I made a conscious effort to stop, pass by his place of work, which was he had an office in a house on my way home. And I stopped by there to see if his car was there and it wasn't. So I went home and it was trash day and his car was in the driveway, but the trash cans were um, just like strewn across the driveway, blocking his car. So I could tell that his car had never left. Isn't it amazing how you make one-to-one so fast and you make, like you tell yourself the story and you come to conclusions so fast when you're in panic. Yeah. So, and I wasn't quite in panic yet because he could work from home. It wasn't Mm -hmm. unusual. Like a lot of, he was a big kind of yard person. So a lot of times he'd work in the yard and also be working his business Mm -hmm. from, he just needed his phone. Right. So I went inside and I, um, we had two big dogs at the time and I couldn't find him like anywhere. And so then for briefly, I got kind of, um, I mean, I started to get panicky, but then I also got a little bit hopeful because I said to myself, oh, he must be in the backyard. So I looked in the backyard and he wasn't in the backyard. And then I just got really panicky because I knew he was somewhere in the house and I couldn't find him. And the dogs weren't leading you to him? They were not. And I, I wish we don't have those dogs anymore, but I to this day, I'm like, if dogs could talk, I mean, like, I know they know exactly what happened, knew exactly what happened. I, I'm no, I know they heard things, saw things like I, so anyway, so I did end up finding him, but the other kind of saving grace was that I made a conscious decision to come home before picking up either of the kids. Wow. Which was a miracle, kind of a miracle and unusual. Cause normally I would have picked up both kids, then come home. And somehow I must have called my neighbor and asked her if she could pick them up. Right. And um, so there were a lot of like built in miraculous protection mechanisms, I guess. Yeah. And just some odd things. Like when I first found him, I threw my phone just as an impulse by accident, you know, in shock. And so when I started making the first calls, like 911 and some family members, it was from his phone. And oh so my goodness. everyone was all confused because it was his phone and then it was my voice wow. and then telling them what happened. Wow. So describe to us, I have a lot of questions and I don't know which one, which way I want to go. Describe to me what happens. What are those first thoughts when you found your husband not alive, what he was clearly not alive, right? Correct. He was in your room. Where was he? His walk-in closet. His walk-in closet. So he literally went into a place of privacy that I technically would never have to go into again. Like if I just wanted to seal that room off forever, I could have. Wow. I have this, my own theory about suicide that someone either does a public suicide or a private suicide. Mm. And I learned in my support groups shortly after of some other suicides and how different people had done it. And it's like the middle of the living room or, Mm -hmm. you know, the bedroom or, so I feel like if it had been any other place besides something very private like that, then I may not have been able to stay in my house. Right. But 11 years later, and we're still in the same house. Which, Which is courage for you, I think, strength and courage. And thank you. And it shows that you're really, you're working through it. You're not running away from it. I'm not, and I'm not saying that anybody that moves is running away from it, but you're determined to be where you are Mm -hmm. and moving forward from where you are. Right. Tell me what happened to you when you described to me, like, how did you not just 
collapse? How did you not just say, okay, this is a dream or start shaking that, that you can't even call 911 or, ch- or shake him up and down to see that he's really not alive anymore? Well, I think it's that whole flight or fight call to action where you just go into autopilot logistics mode and you know something's horribly wrong. And so you know that you have to do something about it or try to do something about it or figure out what happened or call somebody for help. Or So that's what I did. And the ironic part always to me was that what I saw was an extremely peaceful scene. But I know what really happened was the complete opposite of peaceful and clean and whatever. I mean, internally, just, you're saying internally, it was not peaceful. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if I, I mean, I, I must have blocked it all out what I really saw, but it's just so hard for me to believe. Cause I felt like shortly after I remembered it so well that I was like, I don't, I, I didn't block anything out. Like that's exactly what I saw. But I'm like, when I heard the full story of what happened, I'm like, that, that's not what I saw at all. Mm. <laughs> so that, that was very confusing, but so it was a it was a peaceful scene, and because of that, I and because of the fact that I knew even up until the night before he was giving himself a preventative shot for his multiple sclerosis, mm-hmm. that I knew that he had trying every which way to survive and be here, and so I knew it was an impulsive act, and that he was not in his right mind, and I kind of personally. I'm notorious for having a delayed reaction to things. Mm-hmm. So your question about how did I not do, you know, just freak out completely and this and that and the other, I think you're in such shock in the moment that it just like pushes you into action or mm-hmm. pushed me into action. Mm-hmm. And so I immediately, you know, called 911, called my mom, called his sister, called his brother. And then after that, I was just constantly on this search for like answers try to figure out like why, even though looking back, I know why I created my own closure and my own story of why and how and what. And with a suicide, it's so different from any other death because part of the hardest part is just not knowing or not understanding. And I almost, a couple of times I said to people early on, it almost would have been easier if it was a car accident because you can't explain that. Like you can't, it's just random. You just have to accept it and move on. And with a suicide, I just felt like that wasn't good enough. Like I needed to know more. Yeah. And I think that's part of the big, big pain of suicide. The tremendous amount of pain of suicide is the, what were they thinking the few minutes before? Could I have been there to prevent it? What the thousands of what ifs that go through your mind and the basic one, how can this be? Like we hear about suicide, but never to never in my close family. Like, how does this happen to us? That shock. I'm the one telling the story. I'm not the one reading the story. Exactly. How? And that repetition of the questions is part of a misery. I think it's part of misery, Mm -hmm. right? Because it doesn't let um, you move on because it's holding on to that Lack of understanding. Knowledge is power, right? Yeah. And when we don't have knowledge, it's just pain. Yes. Yes. And I think that's part what you were just talking about is part of why I've wanted to be so open. Like even starting with the funeral and the preparations, it was kind of like, you know, my family saying, How public do you want to be about this? And what I was like, I don't want any secrets because I think people should know that that's what happened. And you know, whether it could help someone else in their family in the future, or also just said that there's no like secrets that could come out later and hurt my family or it just like, there was never any question from the very beginning. I think that's so powerful. And I want people to understand this and everybody acts differently, but I think when we live with a secret, it's another toll. It's another thing that we have to work on another. It takes, it's like a stress. It's a stress. Right. Yeah. It's a stress. Are we going to tell the story properly? Is, is, is it going to leak versus I'm going to say the truth, the whole truth and accept the truth. And through it, saying the truth, I'll probably get some clarity and answers and support. But if I'm hiding it from the world, I'm probably hiding it parts of it from myself as well. How can we yeah. heal? How can we move forward? Yeah. And the stress of 
like, what would you tell people if you're not telling the truth and how many different versions of whatever non-truth you're telling? And eventually it's going to get back to my kids in a way that is not going to be the right way. Yeah. It just seemed like so much effort for no reason. Yeah. I think that's incredible courage, incredible courage to be able to accept it. And it was probably part of you that just wanted to heal from it and just like understand in a way and accept Mm -hmm. it. And part of healing is accepting. And if Mm -hmm. you're going to live in this little story that you're telling the world, but you know, in your eyes, you saw it, you felt Mm -hmm. it, it just didn't feel right to you. Living with mental illness can be full of pain, frustration, and anguish. At times, it can feel like you are completely alone. Well-meaning loved ones may not understand what you are going through and might not be able to offer the support you need. Finding the right source of support is crucial to your journey of healing. While we always encourage you to seek appropriate medical and psychological help, adding someone to your team who has been where you are can provide a much-needed shoulder to lean on. Matana knows what it is like to feel debilitating anxiety, and through her own journey of more than a decade living with mental illness, she has spoken with hundreds of others navigating their own anxiety and depression. Matana is not a therapist or a doctor, but has been able to partner with many individuals like yourself, creating a strategy toward mental, physical, and emotional well-being. One-on-ones with Matana are self-paced conversations allowing you to move forward at a comfortable pace. She'll work with you as you discover your own path and the steps that are right for you. To schedule a free 30-minute consultation with Matana, head over to hopetorecharge.com forward slash free. That's hopetorecharge.com forward slash F-R-E-E. Or you can click the link in today's show notes. And now let's get right back to Matana and today's conversation. I I can't say because I'm 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 not part. I, I can't say because I haven't been in anybody's shoes. Really, I can't be in the, in that shoes. I can't really say, but I know there is such a stigma around sharing it. What do you think is uh, is the biggest fear of people when they find out? that somebody from their family died from suicide. What's that fear and shame? I know a lot of people have a feeling of, they view the person who did it as selfish. Really? Yeah. You haven't heard that one? No. People will tell you that's the most selfish act someone can do because they say that, how could they do that to you and your family and your kids? Wow. And I always said, he didn't do it to us. He did it for him, but not in a selfish way, but he did it because it's the only thing he knew to do for himself to not be in that misery anymore. So I immediately, um, I got wind that some of his family was extremely angry with him, obviously because of what he did. And I immediately said, like, I don't want you guys to be angry with him. I'm not angry with him. Like I'm angry at the universe from letting it happen, but I'm not angry at him because I know that he did everything possible to prolong his life up until less than 24 hours later when he took that shot to prolong his life. Right. That's so beautiful that you could say that, that you don't, you were defending him when he wasn't able to defend himself. I think that's true love because, because if you look at it, love can be selfish. You're not here for me. So I'm going to be angry at you. But you really, at a moment that he couldn't defend himself, even though his actions hurt the family, but mm-hmm. you saw that it was he tried his best. He, it wasn't, it wasn't because he was selfish. It was because he could no longer continue. Right. And one of the first people I talked to was a longtime rabbi friend of the family, and his. Words of wisdom, which are really cool, that he said to me was that severe depression like that is kind of like if you picture someone walking up a flight of stairs with a cup of water on their head and time and time again, they're able to do this and the water never spills. Mm. And all of a sudden you add one more like tiny drop of water and like the whole thing just falls apart. 
Right. It's such a nice analogy and it gives us um, the ability to understand what goes on when somebody is struggling. So it's, it, I guess the point was, it's not always the biggest thing that puts someone over the edge. It could just be that one last drop thing. Or a drop, a, just a right. drop of change. And it could be also a, a physical change. Right. I remember speaking to one of our guests, Ann Moss, and her son died from suicide. And she explained that the brain goes into like a mini like panic attack spasm. And it doesn't, and it, when you, when one has a suicide sight or vision or attempt, it's, it doesn't last very long, but if there's no one there to talk them out of it or to help them, they cannot control it. And usually it's because it's uh, sometimes people reach out and then that's what stops it. And if they're, and sometimes when they're alone, there's no one to stop that. It's like a spasm in the brain and there's nothing Mm -hmm. you could do about it. And, and we can't fault them because it was out of their control. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what goes back to what you were saying before, that people think it's selfish. And it's really not. It's really mm-hmm. not. It's just, and a lot of people that struggle with suicide thoughts or suicide attempts, it's, they feel that the world will be a better place without them because they're a burden with all their mental illness or mm-hmm. struggles. And they're doing, they feel like they're doing a service to the world because they feel unworthy of the support. Right. And well, it's, if, it's short, definitely a short-sighted, short-term view. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what they're convinced. Mm-hmm. They're convinced that the world is going to be a better place without them. That They can add to the world and they're just giving pain and struggle and, and their struggle is adding struggles to others. So if I, if I just take myself away, everything will be okay. And we can't convince them out of it, especially if we're not there and they're not sharing with us constantly. And right. Yeah. Tell me about your thoughts about sharing with children. Your your children are young. How do you share such a thing with children? Do you do it with a therapist? Do you do it slowly? So fortunately, the same rabbi I was telling you about is a very close friend of a woman who started a support center locally here for survivors of suicide. And so he put her on the phone that night before my kids got home and basically said, what's your advice for how we tell the children? Mm-hmm. And then we started going to counseling, grief counseling at their, at her center several months later. So the advice from she and the center, their whole mentality is from a very young age, they wanted the kids to get familiar with the word suicide in their um, grief counseling so that it wouldn't be so taboo. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a little bit unnerving when, you start when they're five years old and they come home and they know the word suicide at five years old. Wow. But what her advice was, was kind of like anything else. It's almost like when you're talking to kids about sex ed and it's like, you want to answer all their questions to the best that you can, but you don't want to overstate or offer them any more information than you have to. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like explain to them that his mind was ill and almost as if it's any other disease, like a cancer or something else, but like his mind was ill and he hurt himself really badly and, you know, isn't coming back. And so that's basically what I did. And my daughter was seven and she immediately started questioning, well, did he have this? Did he have that? Well, why didn't we take, why didn't he tell us he was sick so we could take him to the doctor? And, you know, it was when like different flu, like the swine flu was happening or the bird flu. And so she said, well, did he have that? She also Every, wanted answers just like you, right? Yes. She was going through the the why, the why, the how, yes, the how. Yes. So eventually she was at a point where she knew all the details and my son was still too young. And um, at some point, I think maybe he knew pretty much the details when he got a little older, but now he's 14 and he has never asked any more detail about what or why. I mean, I feel like he almost got off easier because he was three and a half. So he didn't, he doesn't have firsthand memories of him. So all he knows is not having his dad. They both are extremely well-adjusted and have had a ton of family support. My, their grandparents are here and um, both sets of grandparents are alive and they've got, we have tons of extended family and, you know, went to the child counseling. It was a group of kids and they 
just somehow got to a point where they, well, the other thing I was told was with young children, get them back to their routine as soon as possible. And as long as they have the basics, like food and shelter and water, they're like happy as a clam. It's almost like it's a blip on their radar briefly until they go older. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, that's what was so like a mixed blessing was as an adult and a parent, you're still grieving and your kids, you're watching them like, oh my gosh, they're like fine. And it happened like last week, like what is going on? And it's like, you're happy that they're doing okay. But then you're kind of like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with you? You're not even like grieving over your father. It's like, you have no idea what happened. So it's just really interesting. Do you think it's real fine or they're just... Yeah. I mean, I think they, their brains are so basic at that age that like the counselor said, as long as they have their normal routine and they have food and water and, and feel safe, they, it's like, that's all they need. They just go right back to playing. Wow. But, is it um, denial or is it just they're not processing? I don't processing? Think it's denial. I think it's just the non-processing. Like, I think it's just the non-realization of what's really happening right now. But what about when they go to a school function that all the diets are there or like a baseball game or something like that, that every dad is there? What happens then? That definitely gets hard. I mean, I remember two weeks later, we did try to go to a soccer game for my son. And again, he was only three and a half. Three. So oh my God. It was, it was even early for soccer. And yeah. I remember he refused to play and just sat on my lap the whole time. And to this day, he has never been interested in team sports. And I'm convinced that there's a correlation like subliminally. Right. The amazing thing also though, was at three and a half, it's like he had this like sixth sense. I mean, they say that children are under certain age, five or six. If you're open to this type of thing, that children are closer to like, they can pick up signals more from like the deceased or previous lives or that type of thing. If, you know, for people that are open to that. And it was amazing because when I would get emotional and I'd be like holding my three-year-old, his look would change. And he would look at me and like this look would come over him of like total understanding. Wow. Just like this empathy. And I, I was always just like blown away. Like, oh my God, he like gets it. <laughs> wow. is that incredible? We're so complex. So complex. Wow. I want to, I want to fast forward a little bit to where you are now in life. It's an 11 years later, mm-hmm. 11 years later. It's still really hard. I remember speaking to you a few weeks ago and you were saying that you're going through your own thing and it's 11 years, but mm-hmm. sometimes it feels like yesterday, right? Yeah. It either feels like 600 years ago or yesterday, depending. Right. And you've been through a lot of therapy, right? Group mm-hmm. and, and, and you encourage it, right? Right. Support, Definitely. understanding. How Definitely. did you, how did you, did you get to a point that you could stop asking the whys and the how? Yes. You did get to yes. that? Okay. Can you share with us, what do you think it was that just said no more of that because it's just torturing me? Part of it was I was fortunate enough to reconnect with his original psychiatrist that he was seeing when he and I met before we got married. And it was amazing that I could find her, but it was even more amazing that she not only just agreed to meet with me, she welcomed meeting with me. She said, I would be honored to hear the story. Very well, I had other doctors yeah. in CYA mode, not wanting to even have anything to do with me right after, because I had a lot of questions about medications and why was he on like 50 million pills at a time for three months and that kind of stuff. Right. So, but anyway, so I tracked her down and something that was so comforting was I, I brought a bunch of pictures to show her of like the family and the kids. Cause she mm-hmm. never met them. And, something that was so interesting was I described to her kind of where she left off. And she said to me, he came to me initially for this and that and the other. And it's the exact same things that you're describing. Like there was a consistency between why he had first started talking to her and then where she left off. And then the same things that he was going through the next round with the next psychiatrist 10 years later before he died. Wow. So that made me feel good. And it gave you closure? 
Mm-hmm. And did you take away, did you ever have the guilt? Did I do enough to support him? Did I know enough about mental illness? Could I have prevented this? Not really. There's just a piece of that puzzle, which is he had told me early on, like when we were still engaged, that he had had an attempt in college. And he said, you know, I'm not that person anymore. I'm so much better. I'm different. I, that's, I can't even relate to that person at all. And I, I believed him and I still believe him now. But when he told me that, he was really felt that. My only um, question is, I never knew him as that person. Because for the 10 years that we were, or the 12 years we knew each other and the 10 years we were married, he was probably the healthiest mentally that he'd ever been. So I didn't know to, I was kind of like thinking to myself, should I have been on alert like the entire time? Mm -hmm. But I don't think I should have, because I don't think it was in his realm of thinking. I think it kind of was almost like a recurrence years later, once his mom died and there were some complexities with their relationship that were unresolved and then when all the current day things started happening, like the two worlds colliding. Right. I never really had the guilt emotion. That's amazing. That's really strange. Because I I feel like in talking to doctors and therapists and people, what I've been told is that someone who truly is going to commit suicide, if it doesn't happen today, it's going to happen tomorrow. Like if it's supposed to happen, it's, it will happen. And, you know, a lot of people constantly are writing like suicide notes all the time and, but never having any attempts. And it's like, there's some that are just cries for help and there's some that are real, but it's like for the people that are truly that unstable, if it didn't happen, then it maybe would have happened years later. Who knows? I think it's so important to remember that it's, it's no one's fault. It's really no one's fault. Right. And we want to believe and hope that everybody did the best they can with what they had right then. I have this slogan that I tell people to say when they're, when they're struggling and they're like, but what's going to be next month and what's going to be in a year and what's going to be, I'll say, so I say, be mindful and we, we need to always remember we do the best we can with what we have right now, not in a minute, right now. Right. And the now can change all the mm-hmm. time. So the, the now for your husband changed and it probably was very short, mm-hmm. as you said, because the night before he was taking medicines to live and to be mm-hmm. healthy. Yeah. And it's really something that the brain says, I'm done. I'm right. done. And I don't have any way out. And unfortunately, if there's no one around to help, there's no way out. There's right. just no way out. No, another just interesting thing I've learned in talking to people is the way that different family members, depending on their relation to the person, the way that they process their grief mm. and their emotions differently. Yes. For an example, in talking to and meeting siblings of people who've committed suicide, they've had a whole different take on how they felt toward the person than me being a spouse or someone else being a child. It's just fascinating to me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But that, that's really like anything in life. Like even a, a, a person that dies from old age, the relationship is how you process it. The relation with the person is how you process mm-hmm. the. This is a little bit more emotional because you, there are some that feel like we need answers. As you said before, give me answers, the why, the how, the how could you, all these these things. But yeah, very, very important to remember that for someone that is grieving a loved one that died from suicide, that that each one takes things differently and processes it differently. And different timelines. Yeah. Yeah. What do you wish you had now that you're 11 years into life without your husband? Let's say we go back two years before suicide, a year before suicide. What do you mm-hmm. wish you had? Now that you know you did all the education on suicide, mm-hmm. you went to grief counseling on suicide, you went to support groups, you you spoke to doctors, you read the books, you, you did all the research. Mm-hmm. What do you wish you knew beforehand? Or about, maybe not, or maybe not. Knew about suicide? Or- yeah, most suicide awareness. Did you, did you have knowledge? I had on no su- awareness of it. 
I had no context for it, no awareness of it, nothing. What do you think Um, the world needs now? Well, I think now that depression and anxiety and mental health in the past 10 years even have gotten so much more press and attention. I feel like the term awareness is thrown around so often, but I feel like maybe as bad as this might sound, like maybe people, family members just need more preparation in terms or education in terms of like the warning signs. And because I remember at first my mom saying, well, it just doesn't add up. And I said back to her, it so does add up. Like if you look back at the pieces, mm-hmm. it totally adds up. But at the time, none of us were prepared or aware to realize that. And not that we could have done anything to stop it or prevent it. But I just felt looking back completely uneducated about it. And so I think that's why the whole awareness campaigns are so important is because there's so many people coming out more now with challenges to their mental capacity. And so that, like you said, people around them just need to know more about potential warning signs and when to get help for someone. So my question is, can we prepare family members with awareness? Like, can we teach awareness? Like you gave such a great analogy before about sex ed. Like Mm -hmm. we have to educate our children and every child, we, we educate them as they grow with what they want to, like we, we give them information and then when their questions come, we answer their questions. I believe every question that's asked has to be answered to the mm-hmm. level of their question. So it could be two five-year-olds. One is going to have a question that's much more advanced than another five-year-old. Answer the five-year-old that had the advanced question because that's mm-hmm. where they want to be. So the question is, how do we really educate people when there's no conversation about it? And how, is it possible to have a, a conversation when it's something that we don't want to, we really don't want to believe that is reality. How do we prepare people? How do we talk about it? I don't know. It's, I mean, it's difficult because the patient, I guess, is typically going to deny it. I mean, I know you, you know, when people like that go to the doctor, the first question is, have you had any suicidal thoughts? And nine times out of 10, they're going to say no, even Mm -hmm. if they have. Mm -hmm. But I just think getting it on people's radar more. And maybe talking about mental illness more and that to understand that even though they're not talking about suicide, their pain is so strong, can get so strong that it can get unbearable and have empathy to that. Yeah. I think the other thing is, I don't know about you, but like I grew up in a time when therapy was not spoken about at all. And I didn't know anyone that went. And I remember the irony was when I met my husband, I was like, oh my gosh, you are so lucky that you've been to so much therapy that you know yourself so well. I'm so jealous. Mm. Like what a luxury to know yourself yes. so well. Yes. And I'm, that was like the fatal flaw. <laughs> but I, I think our kids' generation is going to be much more prepared mentally to deal with life because a lot of them are starting therapy at a much younger age, but they're just much more aware and have less hangups. It's so much less taboo now to talk about in general. And knowing that mental illness is not the end of the world and knowing that mental illness is something that doesn't mean that we're broken. It means that we're working on ourselves right? and it's not something to be afraid of and to be shamed of and to run away from, but to work on. And the more we work on it, the stronger we become. That whole concept that mental illness is something that we want to run away from. No, let's work on it. Let's become better. And as you said, I think therapy is a luxury. Mm -hmm. I love, I love therapy. Mm -hmm. I always say that when I, I know when I'll hit the jackpot and win the lottery in life, when I can hire five different therapists for different days of the week to analyze different things, one for family, one for, uh, for my traumas, one for moving forward, one for, for marriage, one for friends, you know, there's something so like clarity, knowledge is power. 
And yeah. I think with the right therapist, and you and I'm going to emphasize the right therapist, sometimes you could be with a therapist that doesn't move you forward, doesn't take mm-hmm. you to the clarity you need. But with the right therapist, like, like any other doctor, you can get to a dip- deeper understanding and know how to prevent triggers, how to have better boundaries, how to act better in life, how to have a healthier life environment, yeah. choose right, you know, how to overcome struggles. And that's a luxury. It's really mm-hmm. a luxury. I agree. Yeah. I agree. So I want to wrap up, but I want you to give us a tip, a thought, an inspiration, an insight, something that you can gift the listeners from your experience, from your heartbreaking mm-hmm. experience, and from your path of growth for the last 11 years. We didn't even tap into the last of 11 years, and we're going to have you on again to discuss that recovering after suicide. Yes. Like we, we need another episode. This was like more awareness that it happens and not to not right. to be embarrassed and not to have that shame and stigma and to look the pain in the eye. As mm-hmm. Marshall Linehan says, in order to get out of hell, you have to walk through misery. There's no way to overcome and heal from a loved mm-hmm. one dying by suicide without walking through misery. It's just part of healing, unfortunately. Right. So, so that was this episode. And I would love to have you back again to discuss the 11 years and the future that you're building yes. and what, what that looked like and the ups and downs and the hope mm-hmm. and the growth that you went through, your own mental health growth, mm-hmm. the dips, the, the, the highs yes. and the lows, right? Yes. Your own journey. So we're going to get to that. But I want you to leave us with something that something that is so powerful for you that you didn't know before. And it's something you wish to put in everybody's mailbox that they should know about mental health or suicide awareness. I would, If you could have something for suicide awareness, that would be great because this is suicide awareness mm-hmm. month. But if not, we can also do on mental health awareness, something that you would love if you had like a, a Wi-Fi to every brain and every person mm-hmm. in the world, what would that message be for someone that went through this? And take your oh time to think, take your time to think. <laughs> That's a hard one. <laughs> something that you're passionate about and you say, I wish I had that. And now it's so clear to me and this can help others. I would say for mental health, not to open a whole can of worms of another topic, but to fully understand the role of medication and when that is the right answer, but to also even more understand all the other things that can help you stay mentally healthy that are not medication um, and how to kind of supplement both or implement both. Because I think that's what we're just starting to crack the surface on was it used to just be, I mean, I walked into his psychiatrist's office a week after he died with a bag of pills that was like two feet by two feet. And it was only from about four months. And I said, I need you to explain this to me. Wow. And the doctor, I was fortunate that he agreed to meet with me for starters, but he explained that there was some rhyme, there was rhyme or reason to all of it. And that for some, he was on it for maybe a day and then, you know, had a side effect. So they switched to something else and it was just, it was trial and error. And so I was kind of like, well, I, I get that. But anyway, so, so I just feel like that is not the only way and it's not always the way, but it can be the right tool, but there are so many other healthy options that you can do for your mind and your body that don't involve just medication. I have um, the chills. I have the chills. <laughs> I have the chills. That's so funny. And tears in my eyes, literally tears in my <laughs> eyes. And I'm choked up because I cannot say amen louder than what you just said. Because, oh, oh my God. Oh my God. I didn't even think you would go this way. But if people understood how important it is that it's, yeah, medication can save lives. Medication is important for certain stages in our recovery and maybe forever, but it cannot be. And I'm going to take it another level. I'm really going to go out there and I'm going to say it out loud. It cannot be the only way to recovery. Correct. You're flat, flat out right. It cannot. Medication is a God gift to universe. 
but it's not the only one. And if you want true recovery, you need to do a cocktail of mindset, exercise, boundaries, brain exercise, mm-hmm. uh, motivation, all these things, positive people you're around, mm-hmm. uh, practices during the day, therapy, different kinds of therapy, healers, spirituality, whatever it is for you. But it cannot, cannot, cannot be only medicine. And then the last thing that I will say is along those lines, one of the psychiatrists said to me, since the medications have gotten so popular, let's say it's been 20 years, I don't know, 15 or 20 years that the mental health medications have just turned into like a dime a dozen. Literally, it is a fact that the suicide rate has not changed in 50 years. I think it got worse. It probably did. It did get worse. It did get worse. um, That's what just shocked me. I was like, you have got to be kidding me. Yeah. So for some, that's again, like I said, for someone who is truly suicidal and has that predisposition for their entire life, they're probably going to do it even with medication and that the medications really are designed more for people to cope with day-to-day types of issues. I was working uh, recently with a client and she wanted to know my experience with my psychiatrist and why I think so highly of my psychiatrist. And I talk about this with the episode and I'm going to wrap up with this because I think it's so profound and I really have chills because I, I so resonate with what you said. And I, I it, it completely caught me off guard because I thought you're going to go down the realm of suicide. I didn't awareness. know where I was going. <laughs> <laughs> I caught you off guard with that question, but she asked me, what was it different about your psychiatrist? And why do you think so highly of him? I said, oh, you know why? I'll tell you why. And I talk about this on the episode and go listen to the episode with Dr. Mm-hmm. Parker. And I don't know what number episode it is, but figure it out. Go look for it. And okay. what he said to me was, it's not medication that's going to heal you. It's everything you do with medication and the medication is going to respond to you with everything you do around it. And the more you're going to do yoga, mindfulness, gratitude, Mm -hmm. meditation, exercise, eating healthy, your boundaries, sleeping right, all these things are going to impact how the medicine is going to affect you and your brain. And he I don't think there are a lot of, and you hear how passionate I am right now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There are not a lot of psychiatrists out there that stress this important factor that it's, that it's not only therapy and it's not only meds. You need to change so many things about the way you see things, your practices in life, your environment and the medicine affects you differently when you do all the other things. Mm-hmm. I call it your toolkit, your mental health toolkit. And yeah. you need to figure out what works for you. You have to figure mm-hmm. out what's that toolkit. Every toolkit is different, but everybody has an intuition to know what will work for them mm-hmm. and what will be best for them. And when you find the right toolkit, the medication will work that much better. And you might even ha- be able to get off of medication. Yes. Right? So many people get off medication with the help of a psychiatry, with psychiatrist, mm-hmm. with the help of a therapist, with guidance, of course, but because they saw a change because yes. they implemented everything else. If you're going to only do medication, it won't be a full recovery, unfortunately. Well, it's become a crutch too. Yeah. A hundred percent. So in my, I know this is a different episode, but in my um, grief journey and then my own struggles with anxiety and other things, all I'm sure as a result of all the trauma, anytime they mentioned any of the medications that he was on, I just say, talk to the hand. I will take anything else, but I won't take anything he was on. Yes. Because you lost trust in them, right? Yes. You lost yes. trust and it was a trauma. I'm not going to take something that I right. feel was was helping my husband not recover right. and led to suicide. We can't blame the medication, but it definitely didn't keep him alive, which right. we hope the medication will make us feel better and will at least keep us alive, right? Of course, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Thank you, Marnie. Wow. What a, what a powerful insight. And thank thank you. you. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for making time for us. And thank you for inspiring us to listen to conversations, to not be afraid 
of discomfort and listening mm-hmm. and learning and educating our children about mental health awareness, mental illness, to not be afraid of it. And when we Thank hear you. suicide, not to run away from it, to talk about it, to right. feel the pain, to not shame the people that are walking through grief from suicide, to, mm-hmm. to, to see how powerful they are and how strong they are and give them support. So thank you, everyone. Marnie, we're going to have you back here again. It was a lovely, lovely speaking to you. And I really hope that if anybody's listening and knows that somebody that's struggling with suicide, share this with their loved ones. I'm not sure if it's appropriate for someone that's struggling with suicide, but share this with family and friends of loved ones that are struggling with suicide thoughts, attempts, conversations. Hope all is well and bye till next time. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Are you looking for online therapy? Are you stuck at home like everyone else? High stress, high anxiety, worried about the future, trying to navigate everything, have a lot of worries, have a lot of emotional roller coaster rides up and down, just like me. BetterHelp.com is one phone call away, one Zoom call away, one text away. It's an online platform for therapy. It's so perfect for now, for coronavirus, for what people are going through now. We can reach out and get the perfect therapist that meets our needs. Don't wait. Check them out. See if you can find somebody don't struggle. They're so affordable. They are so affordable. You're sitting at home. Every therapist is working online now. Reach out and get help you need. If you are struggling, don't struggle in silence. I am so grateful that they are giving us 10% off the first month so you can get affordable access to therapy. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge start your wellness get help get support you need thank you for joining us and taking the time to listen i really appreciate it please hit the subscribe button so you can hear further episodes if you are listening to us on itunes please leave feedback and ratings below let us know if there's any topic that you would like to hear from us in the future bye till next time